You can be seated. Take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 1 Kings chapter 17. 1 Kings chapter 17. We are actually starting a brand new series, or we did last week, we started a brand new series on the prophet Elijah. We started this series looking at a moment in his life and thinking about where he was ministering to, what the situation in the world was going on. And one of the things that we have in the life of Elijah is this continual moment of kind of giving the big picture of what's going on and then focusing in specifically on how Elijah is dealing with what God is doing in his life. It's this kind of unique perspective that we get in this prophet of here's what God is doing through him and then here's how the prophet is feeling and reacting and handling that moment. And so even last week we saw that where he had this moment where he walked up to the king who was worshiping a God that was supposed to bring fertility and rain to the land. And Elijah basically said to him, it will not rain unless I say it's going to rain. And that's what God has determined. That's the big picture. Famine hits, drought hits. They are like that, it tells us in other places, for over three years. And then you focus in on him personally. God sends him away and he goes into the wilderness and he stands beside a brook where he lives for a while and God provides for him through that brook and through a delivery service. Somebody remember the delivery service? What delivered his meals to him? The ravens, right? That's not a normal kind of delivery service. They were unclean animals and they brought in food, uh, meat and bread every day and they dropped it off to him. And that happened until the water dried up. And so God says, I need you to go, move, go somewhere else. In the midst of this, God is preparing him for the big moments that are to come. In fact, I would suggest that everything that happens in the first part, or in all of chapter 17, and the first part of chapter 18, are all preparation for a big showdown that's going to occur that we'll talk about next week that happens on Mount Carmel. A scene full of drama and fire and water and trash talking. It is an epic conflict. God is preparing Elijah for that. And what he's doing is he's doing it the way that God almost always prepares people. And that he takes them to a place of complete and total dependence upon him. I just had this observation after last week. Sometimes, this is, this is always a bad thing when you're a preacher. Sometimes God gives you observations about your sermon after you preached your sermon. Like that would have been good like Saturday night, God. That had been great. Just this observation, and we, Noah and I have started a little podcast that you're more than welcome to listen to. We'd love for you to listen to it. Um, we talk about things that it kind of came as I was preparing for that to talk through some things from last week. And what I thought about this is that when we think about preparing for something, our understanding of how to prepare is completely different than God's. Like if you're preparing for a job, you're going to study everything about the job. You're going to build yourself up in every way you can. I compared it this week to um, if you are just understand that you're going to start playing a sport, that when you go or all the people that just got drafted to the NFL, they're going to start mini camps and workout programs. I'm sure the night that they got drafted, their team sent them, this is what we need you to start doing tomorrow. 
And their job is to prepare them. That's to eat the right foods, but also to build up their muscle, their endurance, their strength. Like They go and work out as hard as they can to make themselves as strong as they possibly can. God's plan for our preparation for doing His work is completely opposite. God says, I need you to do this, and in order to get you there, I need you to be completely weak before me. Surrendered. Our training ground is the weight room. God's training ground is the desert. And so that's what Elijah does, preparing for this showdown that is to come. And when we get to 1 Kings chapter 17, if you remember the story we kind of ended with last week, there was this widow in Sidon, right in the middle of the foreign God's capital city, the very seat of what the worship of this God would have been. And, And God had said to Elijah, I need you to go to Sodom into enemy territory. By this time, by the way, he would have been an wanted man. Because when somebody walks in to say to the king, it's not going to rain until I say it's going to rain. And then he walks out and it doesn't rain. What is the king wanting to do? Find the man and say, tell it to rain. He would have been a wanted man. And so he leaves his open place. And what we find out is that it's not just in the area of Israel that it has become dry. It is an area-wide famine. And so they were experiencing it in Sidon as well. And God says, I need you to go to this foreign land with foreign gods and meet a foreign lady who is going to provide for you. And he gets there. And if you remember, she says, well, I don't have anything to give you. I'm about to go make bread for the last time and then we're going to die. And God tells Elijah to say, make me some bread first. And then it'll never run out. In fact, that's where we left off in verse 15 of chapter 17. It says, So she proceeded to do according to the word of Elijah. Then the woman, Elijah, and her household ate for many days. Now all that we know of her household is her and Elijah and her son. The flour jar did not become empty and the old jar did not run dry. According to the word of the Lord, he had spoken through Elijah. Now, if I were writing the story, that seems like a good place to end. Amen? Praise be to God. That's not where it ends. We're going to read the rest of this story. We're going to read the whole story in just a moment. Then we're going to go back and break it down. We're going to do that in three parts. We're going to do it quickly. Because I know y'all got to get to restaurants today. It's Mother's Day. One thing I learned early on in my preaching career is don't preach long on Mother's Day. Verse 17. After this, some translation says sometime after this. We don't know how long this went on, a few weeks, a few months, a year or two. They're eating all the time. But here's what happens. After this, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. His illness got worse until he stopped breathing. Do you know what stopped breathing means? He's dead. He died. She said to Elijah... Man of God, what do you have against me? Have you come to call attention to my iniquity so that my son is put to death? But Elijah said to her, give me your son. We're not going to talk about this next picture, but I want you to imagine this picture. So it's her dead son, and he says, so he took him from her arms. Brought him up to the upstairs room where he was staying, laid him on his own bed. Then he cried out to the Lord and said, Lord, my God, have you also brought tragedy on the widow I am staying with by killing her son? Then he stretched himself out over the body three times, cried out to the Lord and said, Lord, my God, please let this boy's life come into him again. So the Lord listened to Elijah. 
And the boy's life came into him again, and he lived. That's a good place to shout. All right, that's good. Elijah took the boy, brought him down from the upstairs room into the house, and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, look, your son is alive. And the woman said to Elijah, now I know. You are a man of God, and the Lord's word from your mouth is true. Three observations I want to make real quickly about this passage of Scripture, but they are vitally important. And it is Mother's Day, and these are, these are messages for moms, but they are also messages for all of us. And the first thing that we see in this passage of Scripture that's important for us to notice is that God is the God of the outsider. And what do you say that for? This woman was an outsider. She was not in the club. She was not inside. She was an outcast. I mean, according to Jewish culture, where Elijah would have just come from, according to the culture that Yahweh's people followed, this woman was an outsider in every possible way. She was a Gentile, which means she was a racial outsider. She was a pagan, meaning she was a religious outsider. She was a woman, who she was a gender outsider. And she was a widow, meaning she was an economic outsider. She was an outsider because of her race, her religion, her gender, and her wealth. And yet this is the one that God sent Elijah to minister to. And you say, was it really that important that we talk about that for a minute? Here's how important it is that we talk about it. In Luke chapter 4, and you don't have to turn over there, but in Luke chapter 4 verse 25 is the first recorded sermon of Jesus in the book of Luke. And he gets up and he talks about Nazareth and all the things that had happened and in the midst of that, he preaches on a particular passage. His first sermon he's ever preached, and he chooses to preach on a particular passage. I don't know. Anybody want to guess what he preaches on? Do we have that? But I say to you, this is Jesus in Nazareth, there were certainly many widows in Israel in Elijah's days when the sky was shut up for three years and six months. That's a long time not to have rain. While a great famine came over all the land, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them except a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. He is saying basically he was sent to a the wrong, according to their culture, okay? The wrong gender, the wrong place, and the wrong gods were served there. Let me just ask you a quick question. So I remember my first sermon. I was 15 years old. My home church, my pastor was going to be out of town. And what I realize now is he did not have any backups on that day. <laughs> and thought, you know what? This would be a great day. The Lyle's going to be a preacher someday. Let's let him do it. And I gave it everything I had for nine and a half minutes. <laughs> I thought I had a full one going and it was nine and a half minutes. I, as soon as that sermon was over, got more pats on the back than you can ever imagine. I got some head rubs. There were people genuinely thinking it was the greatest sermon they'd ever seen. They got to the restaurants or the first tea before anybody else in town. There were several times past that that I'd be standing next to my pastor and one of those people that enjoyed the brevity of that sermon would say to him, anytime you're gone and you want Lyle to preach, 
Go ahead. It would be great. It was awesome. Lots of pats on the backs, lots of encouragement in my hometown, my first sermon. You may remember what they did to Jesus after his first sermon in his hometown? They tried to kill him. Why? This. You see, he was challenging the reality that they thought that the kingdom of God belonged to those inside the faith that did exactly what they were supposed to do, that were exactly who they determined met God's approval. And yet Jesus is saying, I have come for the outsiders. We get that also in the place of his genealogy. A couple of years ago, we did a Christmas series around here called 23 and Jesus about the history and ancestry of Jesus. And what's fascinating in the book of Matthew is in those days, anytime you were doing a genealogy, you try to make it look as good as it possibly could. If you wanted to be you rise to king or anything, you wanted to expunge anything that would be questionable in there. In fact, there are, uh, there are evidences of people like Herod completely deleting parts of his family from his genealogy so no one would know they were there. And yet in Matthew chapter 1, what we have is the genealogy of Jesus. And Jesus goes out of the way to particularly talk about some women which would have been never seen in genealogies. And not just women, but women that all had significant issues. According to Jewish custom... Rahab, who was a prostitute, Ruth, who was a Moabite, and Bathsheba, who committed adultery with the king. Those are not three people that anybody else would have put. And God says, these are people that God used to bring about the Savior of the world. And what's fascinating about that is that Abraham, Father Abraham, and Rahab are mentioned together in the genealogy, basically saying that everyone is level at the cross. No matter who you are or what you've done, and that goes for anybody in this room, if you feel like an outsider economically or socially, religiously, racially, the good news is you're right where God intends for you to be, to be saved by Him. Another example is the Samaritan woman. She comes to the well she is all of these things. She's a racial outsider because she's Samaritan, religious because they worshipped in Samaria, gender, and also had some moral issues. And yet in the middle of that, God comes to her in the person of Jesus who went out of his way to go through Samaria to meet with her. If you're here today and you feel like the outsider, God has come for you. God desires a relationship with you. Let me say this to the church. If the God we serve is the God of the outsider, then doesn't it stand to reason that we ought to be people of the outsider? That we ought to be the people that are looking to help those that are racially distant, religiously different, that feel less than because of their economic or moral situation? Shouldn't we be the people of the outsiders telling them of the reality of God's love and their only hope is in Jesus Christ? 
I want to ask you a question that I've asked before in this place, and it's not original for me. I've heard it from several places, but I want you to think just for a moment about your prayers over the last week. And I want to ask you this question. If God answered every one of your prayers in one moment, in one instant that you have prayed over the last week, every prayer that you prayed over the last week, God answered them immediately, how many new people would be in the kingdom of God? How many people would be saved? Who are you praying for? Who are you reaching out to? You've got to understand that this woman basically is going to come to faith in God, in Yahweh, because a weirdo showed up on her doorstep. Right? Elijah wasn't a normal person at this moment. He's in the desert being fed by ravens. If someone shows up at your door and say, Hey, God was feeding me these sandwiches every day by ravens dropping them off in my house, and I get some water out of the creek, and it dried up, and he told me to come find you, you're not going to go, well, come on in, this is awesome. He's willing to do what God ever God asks him to do. And there are people in your life, or let me just say this, there are people that are not in your life yet that God has called you to be the weirdo to, to tell them about Jesus. And I'm not talking about weird for weird's sake, all right? we got lots of that at Christianity, okay? I'm talking about committed to the Lord. First point in this passage is that God is the God of the outsider. Second point is this. God sometimes will confuse us. Can I get an amen in the house of the Lord? I want you to think about this emotional path this woman is on. She is down to her last bit of oil, her last bit of flour, her last bit of bread. And then God provides for her this salvation in this man of God who shows up from another land with another God that he serves and shows him the true God. And she is all in and thankful, so much so that Elijah's living, it tells us, on the upper room of her house. We'll talk about that in just a moment. And all of a sudden she thinks life is finally there. In the midst of a famine that is happening and a drought that is going on in all the land for three and a half years, she has plenty to eat. This widow in the middle of Baal's capital city has all she needs to eat. And then her son dies. And she's like, wait a minute. I thought God was taking care of me. I thought God was protecting me. I thought God is my salvation and now my son dies. Just because God saves you today doesn't mean that there's not difficult coming tomorrow. She says, God, you gave me something to praise you about yesterday. And today I am questioning who you are. We all know from personal experience that victory today doesn't eliminate trials tomorrow. That sometimes in the same area God gives us victory that we sometimes experience difficulty. That's what happened to this woman. Her son and herself were saved and then her son dies. Listen to one preacher this week and he said sometimes even our blessings become a curse. You thank God for your mate and you curse God because you got one. I'm not saying anybody here, please don't point. You thank God for a job and then you curse God because you hate the job he gave you. Here's what happens to this woman. She has a house that has been gladdened by God. The gladness of God And instead it turns into sorrow. And she looks at him in verse, in chapter 17. 
And she looks at Elijah and says, man of God. And I don't know if there's a question mark there. I don't know if that is. You are a man of God, but you are of the judgment God. But he says, what do you have against me? Let me just tell you that the Hebrew construction of that is almost identical to what we studied just a few weeks ago in the book of John. When Mary comes to Jesus and says, uh, "Can you? we've run out of wine. And Jesus says, what does that have to do with me? Right? Y'all remember that? It's almost the exact same construction in the original language here. Basically, she's saying, why are you here? What have you done? What have you brought upon my house? And what's interesting is, in this moment, we see her beginning to allow her circumstances to determine her theology. What is happening in her life is what determines what she thinks about God. His presence, this man of God, this prophet of God, that was in a moment the blessing that she needed has suddenly become a reminder of the judgment that has come on her house in her view. Because in that day and time, the only reason that you thought a son like that would die is because of the judgment of God or whatever God in their minds you were serving in that moment. And she's saying basically either your God has destroyed my son or my God when I went to yours has come after him and he can't do anything about it. And so he's saying to the man of God, get out of my house. I have nothing to do with you. It's amazing how the circumstances of our life, if we're not careful, determine how we view God and what God is speaking to us. My guess is every one of us in this room has had a moment in our lives when we did not get what we thought God should do for us. And how we react when we don't get from God what we think we ought to get from God says a lot about what we really believe about God. Our perspective sometimes changes even in the midst of a trial and we go from a place of God, I give you praise to God, why did you do this? God, I trust you completely. God, I need you to leave me alone. It's amazing how different perspectives can make us feel and think and act. I heard this week about a wife who went to her husband one day and said, I just want you to know that you were with me when I dropped out of college. No, I haven't forgotten that. You were with me when I got fired from my job, and I haven't forgotten that. You were with me when I broke my leg in that terrible accident, and I've not forgotten that. And you were with me when that economic downturn hit, and I haven't forgotten that. She said, but I think back upon it, what I've come to decide is there's only one thing that is true in this situation, and that is you are bad luck. (laughs) What do you do when God doesn't act as you want him to act? Can I tell you something? If God always agrees with you in everything you think, your understanding of the world, your understanding of how you should act, your political affiliations, your decisions that you make, if God agrees with everything you do, then you are not serving the God of the Bible, the true one God. You're serving a God of your own making. If he can't confuse you and confound you and do things differently than you, then you are serving a God that is too small and not the real God. So how do you react when the circumstances of your life are different than you want them to be? Do you become cynical? Question everything? Do you rage against the Lord? Do you seek his comfort or do you seek things 
to comfort you in other things. Because true faith, humble faith, is surrendering to God even when the circumstances of your life have gone south. This woman really wasn't doing that in this moment, but her moment comes. Here's the last thing and then we're done. Not only is God the God of the outsider, and not only will God sometimes confuse us, but finally, God has power over death. You see, whatever the cause of the death was, there wasn't another God, that's lowercase g, not real God, that could touch death, and there never has been. Baal couldn't do anything about death. All the religions fall short. All the great religious teachers, Buddha and Muhammad, they all fall short when it comes to death. Even Sigmund Freud, who thought psychotherapy was going to solve everyone's problems and eliminate the need for God. One of the things that psychotherapy cannot prepare people for or get people over is the fear of death. There is nothing in our world that has ever come to a place where it can deal with death. And as a result, we end up putting our trust into things that are only leading that way anyways. People put their trust in money and we know you can't take it with you when you're gone. People put it in beauty or health thinking I'll just take care of myself the best way I can. But here's the thing. Time is marching on and on in our lives. And no matter how hard you fight it, Time wins. You can nip it, tuck it, tighten it, tan it, tweak it, tat it, twist it, lift it, or color it. But in the end, we all end up in the same place. And so when she comes to this moment, she says, what are we going to do about it? There's nothing we can do. She is, as we get this picture, holding tightly. We don't know how old her son is in this moment. He can't be too big in this scenario because of the way he's carried around. But we know that she is holding tightly to her son. And basically saying, raging against God, why did you let this happen? You as a man of God, why did you do this? And the point of this moment is to show that God has the power over anything in our lives, even that which nothing else can touch, which is death. And it's to show that we ought to know and love and be a part of the family of God, that the greatest need of our life is to be saved by Him. Both Elijah and this woman, this widow, have to understand that knowing God is better than multiplied oil or a temporarily revived son. I use the phrase temporarily revived because none of us know this boy because he eventually died again. Now knowing God is the most important thing. And Jesus has come. Let's think about this miracle just for a minute. It's kind of a strange one, isn't it? He picks the boy up. He goes and puts him on his bed in the upper room. A lot of people think that may have been on the roof. There may not have, it wasn't like they had a four-story house or anything. Or a second story would have been up with windows. Lays him on the bed. And then it says in Scripture, and this just feels a little weird, sounds a little weird, and it is a little weird, because if the boy is dead, Elijah's not supposed to touch a dead body. It makes him unclean. And yet he begins to call out to the Lord, and it says he stretches out over him, and he lays down on him, not once, but not twice, but three times. Now we know in Scripture that the 
Number three is a number of restoration and resurrection. Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days, and Jesus was in the belly of the earth for three days. And so in this moment, we have this picture that is happening there. And what is happening in most people, most scholars think that Elijah is literally saying, let the life that was in him come back to him and let me be the sacrificial vessel. It is interesting that he stretches out from what we get in the picture of what is described in the English language, almost in a crucifix position and lays down over him, surrendering to him. He is doing like what happens with Hezekiah. Over in 2 Kings, when Sennacherib has threatened him with letters, and he lays it before the Lord, and he says, Lord, read what this guy is saying. What are we going to do about it? As the, Elijah comes and says, Lord, you have given me this place. You have provided for me here. This widow has been great. Why did you do this? Look at the situation. How does this glorify you? God, glorify yourself here. But I think what is fascinating about this particular passage of Scripture is the correlation it has to Jesus. I mentioned it was his first sermon over in Luke chapter 4. Anybody want to guess what Jesus does right after he preaches that sermon? He goes and raises a widow's child from the dead. You think he's trying to make some parallels there? But I also find it interesting in the question that the woman asks. She looks at the prophet of God and says, What do you have to do with me? And have you come to call attention to my sin so that my son is put to death? She basically asked Elijah, Did my son die for my sins? And God, through the resurrection, however temporary of that son, basically says he's not able, but my son will come and will. Those of you that have been around for a few years, been here almost 15 years, I don't do a lot of the allegorical symbolism that happens in Old Testament. New Testament, I think that sometimes that is forced. But everything I read in this passage and I look at how Jesus began his ministry basically saying, I am the new Elijah that has come to bring the power of God. And Jesus, when he did the raising, didn't have to lay down three times. He didn't have to plead with God. He basically just said, get up, let's go. The point that is making here is the most important need in your life is not for miracles or provisions or blessings to happen. All those are great. It is for you to be in a complete relationship with Jesus Christ where you know Him as your Savior. And the key to that comes right at the end. Verse 24, the last verse of this chapter says, And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know. The word there, know, means complete, experiential, life-altering knowledge. So my question for you today is, do you know Jesus. And if you don't, are you willing to listen and to say yes to Him for the first time? Also, just have another challenge for those of us that are believers. Actually, it's a two part challenge. One is what I said earlier be the weirdo to somebody that needs Jesus. I don't mean go get you some pet ravens and put them on your arm and go talk to them. I mean. Just reach out and talk to people. Ask them about their faith. 
My second challenge is this. In this moment when this woman had a burden that she could not carry alone, a man of God took the burden, prayed over it before God, and was her gap in between. And there are times in our lives when all of us need someone to help carry the burden. And I would say to you believers, if you're in that moment, find someone, trust someone, allow them to carry the burden with you. And the second thing I would say is, there are all, all of us in this room as followers of Jesus Christ, there are going to be times in our lives where we need to be the burden carriers. Find those people that need to have their burden carried and carried it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray for this moment and this time and this opportunity to respond to you. And we pray, Lord, that we would just simply do what you've called us to do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.